This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, we're at a critical turning point uh, and one of those historical moments uh, for the United States and, and frankly, for the world right now. Um, and we're going to be speaking about the murder of uh, George Floyd, its uh, implications locally, nationally, and internationally. Actually, as we're speaking right now from our shelter-in-place location in, in Northern California, one of the memorials for uh, George Floyd is taking place right now. So it's kind of auspicious that we're doing Arab Talk right at the same time when one of the more poignant uh, memorials is going on for this individual. This, I mean, we've been talking about this now. This is the third week now we've been speaking about this, Jamal. And the protests keep growing. The outrage keeps growing. We have all four officers now, as of yesterday, being charged with murder. The officer that had his knee on George Floyd and and essentially personally murdered him is being charged with second degree murder. The that's three, uh, just to add, just to add, that's Derek Chauvin. Right, and the three accomplices, the ones who just stood around and watching this, have been charged with third degree murder. And one of the important points is that Attorney General Ellison, the Attorney General for the state of uh, Minnesota, is the one who personally gave a very poignant and very moving kind of um, explanation about why he, as the state Attorney General, got involved with this, up the charges on Officer Chavran. And um, basically, Jamal, this is, this is capturing the nation together with the pandemic, but this is really one of those historical moments that for some people only shows up once in a generation. That's right, Jess. I mean, uh, as we're speaking now, we're watching the memorial uh, going on now uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, And uh, yesterday we watched uh, another memorial when the family came with the attorney speaking right at the site where uh, George Floyd was murdered, I should say. Derek Chauvin, he's, he's, the, he's the officer who had his knee on his neck and was charged uh, uh, with the second degree. Or his, his charge was upgraded. Initially, it was a third degree murder, now it's second degree murder. Then you have Alexander Kong and uh, Thomas Lane. They both uh, helped in restraining uh, George Floyd. And then two Tao, he's the officer that stood uh, in guard, right. basically preventing passers-by and, and eyewitnesses from intervening right. and right. sometimes uh, reaching to his mace uh, gun, uh, you know, in a threatening order. And, and the three of them were charged. I, 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 I want us, um, because in, in this context, Jess, I saw a very important uh, interview by the attorney of the um, George Floyd family. His name is Ben Crump. And he, right. towards the end of his interview, he, sums, he summed it up all. You know, just started naming all the names of those being basically killed by police, uh, you know, throughout the years. And, 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 of course, the first name came to mind is Ahmad Arbery. 
And there was an update because we spoke right. about Ahmad Arbery and in our show Justice for Ahmad, basically. Right. And we didn't think that just a couple of weeks later we will be talking about another police brutality and a murder of an African-American man. But there is an update today before we, we, before we watched the video by uh, attorney Ben Crump is that... Uh, one of the the third party in that chase, the one who took the video, uh, his name is William Bryan. Yeah, he's now basically testifying against the the two, the father and son, the uh, uh, McMichaels, and he said this is a new development that actually there was a long chase wow. of Ahmad that at times they hit him with the truck. He was hit, and this is, they, they hit him, tried to run him over with the truck. And when uh, uh, the McMichael, uh, the, the, the son, I think his name is Travis, yeah. Travis McMichael, shot Ahmad three times. He used racial epithet. Right. I can't repeat it, but he used the N-word, F-N-word, yeah. in while shooting him. So, so how, is, how is that not premeditated murder, Jamal? Well, it's definitely premeditated. Now you have one of the people who, have, the, who got charged now is testifying basically against the, the, uh, the McMichaels. It's, uh, he was chased chased in the truck right. and the reason they caught up with him he was hit and he was exhausted right and he was exhausted trying to cling to his life to defend himself the last moments before they shot him or one of them shot him three times well the, the, in the chest right and 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 basically using racial epithet so the the extremely disturbing development jamal and the defense of the uh, perpetrators of this is that they were the reason they shot him was in self-defense. Nonsense. That, yeah, nonsense. it's nonsense. This it's this lynching. Is, it's a broad daylight no, lynching. It, it's 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 pre as we say in the legal world, it's premeditated murder. There was intention to kill and cause great bodily harm to Ahmed Aubrey, and they intended to kill him. And there's even more evidence for that right now. I think, you know, you, you said that uh, when, when Ben Crum, the lawyer for uh, George Floyd, mentioned a bunch of names, there was another name that came to my mind that we talked about this case too in from New York, uh, Eric Garner. Absolutely. Uh, which was about five years ago, Jamal, and that was, you know, I unfortunately looked at that video recently and the same kind of, you know, absolute disgust, horror, pain of seeing an African-American man be murdered in broad daylight, saying those fateful, painful words that no one, no human being should have to say, which is, I can't breathe. So the word lynching is, is, is very appropriate here, Jamal, when we're talking about African-American men who are succumbing to state violence, because this is violence by the state. The police represent the state. They are being lynched, and the reason lynching is a good word is because when you're lynched, 
you suffocate to death. And both for Eric Gardner and for George Floyd, these are African-American, these are black men who were killed by suffocation. Um, let's, let's take a pause here, Jess. I want us to listen to Mr. Ben Crum. Tomorrow at North Central University with all his family, I also want us to remember that Breonna Taylor, the young lady who was executed in the sanctity of her own home in Louisville, Kentucky, birthday would be on Friday. So let's take a breath for Brianna as well. Let's take a breath for Ahmaud Aubrey as well. Let's take a breath for Terrence Crutcher as well. Let's take a breath for Pamela Turner, who was killed in Houston. Let's take a breath for Alton Sterling, who was killed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Let's take a breath for Philando Castile, who was killed here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Let's take a breath for Laquan McDonald, who was killed in Chicago, Illinois. Let's take a breath for Sandra Bland, who was killed in Texas. Let's take a breath for Natasha McKinney, who was killed by police in Virginia. That's right. Let's take a breath for Stefan Clark, who was killed in Sacramento, California. Let's take a breath for Corey Jones, right. who was killed in Palm Beach, Florida. Let's take a breath for Botham Jones, who was killed in his own apartment in Dallas, Texas. Let's take a breath for Eric Gardner, who was killed in Staten Island, New York. Let's take a breath for Freddie Gray, who was killed in Baltimore, Maryland. Let's take a breath for Walter Scott, who was killed in South Carolina. Let's take a breath for Jamar Clark, who was killed here in Minneapolis. Let's take a breath for... Let's take a breath for Michael Brown, who was killed in Ferguson. Let's take a breath for 12-year-old Tamir Rice, who was killed in Cleveland, Ohio, by the police. Let's take a breath for Trayvon Benjamin Martin, who was killed in Sanford, Florida. Let's take a breath for Emmett Till, who was killed in Mississippi. Let's take a breath collectively for all of the marginalized and disenfranchised and dehumanized people, whether black, brown, white, or red, who were killed unjustifiably, who were killed unnecessarily, and who was killed senselessly because they are American citizens, one, they are human beings, too. And finally, we should all remember they are children of God. Well, that's, that's Ben Crum, the attorney for uh, the family of uh, George Floyd. Um, very poignant, Jamal, uh, with the names. And, you know, this is, you know, this case against these four officers, uh, you know, for the murder of George Floyd represents a much larger kind of uh, picture of what's happening to uh, African-American men, not just this year, but for hundreds of years, Jamal. Well, it, it, exactly, Jess. And this is the point. When people question why people are marching in the streets or they use the term, why are they rioting in the streets? Why are they angry? 
It's not a, an isolated incident. This is no. not an isolated incident uh, with the police. It's a systematic racial profiling, police brutality, uh, targeting African-American men and women, mostly men in, in this case, even though women, you know, there was also the case of the woman who got shot in her own bedroom. Right. Because because of uh, they went to the wrong basically apartment. Right. And and then we can think about the first uh, images that started to come uh, on TV with the brutal beating of Rodney King. And yesterday I watched his daughter uh, also right. speaking about about his case. And this is when you know. And then later on, because we don't know about all these cases that have that have not been captured on camera. Right. You know, going before Rodney King and even after Rodney King, it's not always when you have people around. It's not always when you have eyewitnesses. It's not always when you have somebody with a, an iPhone, uh, you know, or a smartphone. And so this is the tipping point. Uh, I'm, you know, well, I, mean, this, I hope this, you're right. Anger, I, I, I don't know if it's a tipping point. I, I hope you're right, Jamal. Well, I'm hoping it is the tipping point because I, I, I people don't are saying enough is enough. And, 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 and the other thing is just is uh, this is not about just America. This is a global right. story that people ac across the universe. I've been watching TV. I've been watching TV in the Middle East, Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya. I've been watching other news networks in France. Of course, there were demonstrations in France and wherever, and and this story has captured the attention of the entire globe, and also, and I sad to say that highlighted the hypocrisy of the United States yet again. Yet again, when we lecture the world, I mean, just recently we were lecturing China about its uh, brutal reaction in Hong Kong, and then. People across the globe watch what's happening in the United States, watching the thousands and tens of thousands of people uh, from city to city, basically going out in, in the streets. So, so in, in that sense, I believe the United States has lost its credibility to lecture the world on human rights when we I, cannot have our own human rights right here in this country protected you know, when, when, when I see these hypocrite, hypocrites uh, on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans lecturing China, lecturing, uh, uh, you know, other countries, Iran and, and, and Egypt and so forth about, you know, let's human uh, rights, human rights. Let's uh, treat the demonstrators uh, with humanity we just can't do that anymore. We have to clean our own house. We have to put our house in order, and and uh, this has, needs a, a you know a systematic reform. It's not about one case. It's, it's not, not about one case. It's just so embedded in our schools, in our police departments, in the government, everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Jamal, and that's why we call it structural racism. It's not a singular event directed toward a singular, singular person. Although George Floyd's case represents, because of, 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 because of the brutality and the nature of it, is kind of a, uh, 
uh, a representation of the totality of what we're talking about. But structurally, the racism involved in the criminal justice system is really the thing that we're talking about. Um, you know, in terms of uh, we have no right to lecture other countries, you know, that that started decades ago. <laughs> uh, I have to say that, you know, this idea that the hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy and we're at the United Nations lecturing other people about human rights, yet when this country has been involved in a clandestine torture program, when this country has continued to support uh, Israeli brutal tactics, which we're going to talk to a little bit later when we find out about the Minnesota Police Department being trained by the Israeli, uh, you know, the Israeli military and the Israeli police. The credibility of this country, Jamal, to lecture other people about human rights was lost many decades ago. This is yet another, uh, this is yet another painful reminder to the world that the United States is is really got an endemic problem. You know, the knee of the state has been on the necks of African Americans, of black men, for many, many decades, if not hundreds of years since since slavery, Jamal. And, you know, we are... The good news, if there is good news in the, all of this, is that some white people, some politicians, some people in authority are finally, when they see this, you know, right in their face... Are beginning to take notice, but let's. Well, not, I hope it's. I hope it sinks in. I, hope I don't it's know not a temporary thing that but they're, I just don't gonna know. All be, uh, they're just going to all be. They're just going to react now, and we're going to all, uh, you know, mourn uh, the death of and the murder of George Floyd, and then a month down the line, we're right. going to see something similar to this. Well, but I don't on know. the topic on the topic of Israel, and you know, and Palestine, Palestinians are no strangers to seeing images like George Floyd. In fact, Palestinians have hundreds of George Floyd, starting from children to women, to journalists, to adults, to the elderly, who have been brutalized by Israeli occupation soldiers. We have images to show how Israeli soldiers similarly, they step on the neck or they, they put a knee on the neck of Palestinian kids and, uh, and, 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 and many others. In fact, Amnesty International just had a whole right. report talking about what you've mentioned, having uh, U.S. Uh, law enforcement agencies training in Israel. This include, by the way, law enforcement officials from Baltimore. That's doc documented. We're not coming up with it. From Baltimore. Florida, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, where we live, uh, uh, Arizona, Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Georgia, Washington State, as well as D.C. You know, Washington, D.C., the capital, basically police all travel to Israel for training while thousands of others receive training from Israeli officials in the U.S. Just many of these trips are taxpayer funded while others are right. privately funded. Right. And this is since 2002, the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, the American Jewish Committee's Project Interchange and the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs have paid for police chiefs, assistant chiefs, 
and captains to train in Israel and in the occupied Palestinian territories. So they were not only in Israel, but they were also training in, in the, uh, you know, in the West Bank. Uh, and so there are many groups that have been criticizing them, Amnesty International, uh, and according to the United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in 2018, uh, basically, we've seen a major increase, a 70% increase over the year of the previous year in Israeli settler violence right. toward Palestinians right. and a rise in uh, Palestinian death. Actually, before we continue talking about this, we have a video that was produced by Jewish Voice for Peace talking about this. So let's watch and, and listen to it. In the last 15 years, thousands of U.S. police, border agents, ICE officers, and FBI officials have traveled to Israel. We bring over to Israel American police chiefs, sheriffs, law enforcement of every type. Israeli military personnel also travel to the U.S. to exchange tactics with police departments and state agencies. So what's wrong with these exchanges? Under the banner of counterterrorism training, Officials visit Israeli checkpoints, settlements, prisons, secret service, and airports. In each of these sites, human rights groups have documented Israeli discrimination, repression, torture, and killing of Palestinians. And the far-right administrations of Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump are magnifying these human rights abuses, whether that means escalating settlement construction in Israel or ramping up deportations and Islamophobic travel bans in the U.S. You know, in Israel, they profile. They've done a, an unbelievable job, as good as you can do. The police exchanges are one place among many where these two repressive governments deepen their relationship. What is really being exchanged? Arms. These exchange trips occur in the context of larger U.S.-Israeli security collaboration, which includes a constant flow of weaponry. Israel is known as the world's shopping mall for homeland security technologies. The U.S. supplies them with $3.8 billion each year and with weapons, such as tear gas used against peaceful protesters in both countries. These exchanges build relationships between officials who work for both the government and in private arms and security industries. Tactics. A major focus of the exchange trips is how to expand existing surveillance practices in both countries with little regard for human or civil rights. Israel has more surveillance companies per capita than any other country in the world and uses non-stop surveillance in its military occupation of Palestinians. Spying is also key to policing in the U.S., which has the biggest sheer number of surveillance companies in the world. Hewlett-Packard, for example, developed the high-tech identification cards that Israeli security forces use at occupied West Bank checkpoints to collect facial, fingerprint, and retinal data. Ideology. The exchange trips advance racist policies and target social justice movements as security threats. Delegates meet with Israeli riot police, who are well-documented in their use of violence when suppressing peaceful Palestinian protest. So who's going on these exchanges? Officials on these exchanges from the U.S. include officers from the NYPD that profile Muslim and Arab communities, surveilling every mosque within 100 miles of New York City and beyond. 
officers who are building the largest deportation machine in U.S. history. Officers who lead police departments that brutalize black and brown communities. The former St. Louis police chief, Timothy Fitch, trained with the Israeli military three years before Michael Brown's killing and the Ferguson uprising. Officers who attack indigenous-led social movements, like the water protectors at Standing Rock. These exchanges build relationships between these U.S. forces and Israeli officials carrying out similarly repressive, violent, and racist policies against Palestinians, Mizrahi, and Ethiopian Jews, and political activists. Simply put, these trips serve as an exchange of worst practices, emboldening racist policing in the U.S. and holding up an occupying army as a global gold standard. Uh, well, Jamal, that was very compelling from uh, the Jewish Voice for Peace uh, video on this. You know, it speaks to this larger issue which is finally being discussed, which is the militarization of local police forces. And the whole, since 2002, I think, or 2003, uh, after 9-11, there was this push to militarize local police. And what that was is really the influence from being trained by the Israeli uh, police, who were also militarily trained. And now we have a confluence uh, and a, you know, this is why the Jewish Voice for Peace uh, docu mini-doc is so important, because... Basically, these Israeli tactics, these Israeli military tactics, have found their ways into local police departments all over the United States. What I want to just remind you, Jamal, the one word that has come up, the one tactic, the one technique that has come up for the first time, not the first time, but more pronounced than before, you and I will recognize this. What are police using now, Jamal? Rubber bullets. When was, when, when was the last time you heard the use of rubber bullets being used against U.S. citizens for peacefully demonstrating. Uh, By the way, they're targeting also journalists with these rubber bullets, absolutely. not only the demonstrators. A couple of journalists have been shot with rubber bullets. Well, guess where rubber bullets got its uh, infamous uh, name from? From the Israeli military and police using rubber bullets on Palestinian men, women, and children. And that word, rubber bullets, is intended to convey to soften the term of, of using uh, regular ammunition or a, a, a regular bullet. But you and I know very well, Jamal, since we covered this on Arab Talk for many years, rubber bullets are just as lethal, just as dangerous, can kill, maim, and hurt people, just like any other ammunition shot from a rifle or a gun. So we now have a world, Jamal, where... The militarization, based on the training from the Israeli uh, uh, police and military, has pervaded uh, local policing here in the United States. You have Humvees, you have helicopters. It's I call it the Israelization of local police of gas, tear gas. Exactly, uh, exactly. And so, I mean, some of the scenes, some of the scenes actually looked like the West Gaza. Bank. With, yeah, with, looked with like the, Gaza and the, the West all Bank. All the gas, and then the attire. By the way, it's no longer police. I mean, you are talking about basically militarizing the police, the way they look, the way they're dressed, the, what they're carrying, uh, the tactics they use, the equipment they use. It's no longer looks like an occupation, really. Well, Jamal, this gets us to the next point, which is um, Donald Trump 
together with his uh, Attorney General William Barr and supported by this Senator Tom Cotton, who actually wrote a, a opinion piece for the New York Times, had the audacity to print this. And, and the title of Tom, Senator Cotton's opinion piece in the New York Times was Bring in the Military. And so when, 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 when in the United States have we seen the military being used against its own citizens? It's the Insurrection Act, which is a very old act from you know the beginning of this country. The last time it was used was 1992 when Rodney King was murdered. The time before that was 1958, Jamal, when Dwight Eisenhower uh, was using it to quell some unrest that was going on in the late 1950s. So we're talking about Donald Trump, not just militarizing the police, but using rhetoric to attack American citizens for their First Amendment right and speaking in this, what I would call, thuggish way, saying that we need to militarize and basically put pressure, military pressure, to clean up the uh, violence that's taking place. And of course, as, as, has, as happens, Jamal, when an incompetent thug uh, preaches like that in a role of leadership, what's going to happen? Of course, it's going to backfire. And what we're seeing is that the protests have only increased. We're going on 11 straight days now of peaceful, primarily peaceful protests. And, you know, we can only hope that this is a kind of turning point because the rhetoric coming from the Trump administration is more thuggish. It's more military, militaristic. And I, I don't know about you, but um, it's becoming more, more. Uh, it, it's an understatement to say concerning because when we think about who, who, who uses the military to threaten its citizens, only dictators and despots do that. And we're talking about Putin. We're talking about Kim Jong Un. We're talking about the you know former uh, Arab leaders like uh, Saddam Hussein, or even current Arab leaders like uh, Abdel Fattah al Sisi. These are really big thuggish people who are despots and dictators who turn their own military against their own people. And we, that's we should we should just to be fair. Also, I mean, you're absolutely hundred percent right about. Trump, but also we should say also that Trump's own defense secretary, Mark Esper, said on Wednesday that he opposes using military forces for law enforcement. But he walked it back later in the day. Yeah, but, but he said it. And then, as he you know, back. and then, as you know, yesterday, General Matthews, right. right, he made a shocking statement. And I always say, why now? Why? What took, what you, took so you so long? long? Right. Exactly. I always say that, but then I, I remember, well, better late than never, that these know. people are speaking uh, against uh, these actions. So I think there is a split uh, in the action of, uh, of what uh, Donald Trump wants to do and with his generals, and this is actually uh, very important to point this out. And I don't think if you talk to the military establishment, they see their role as patrolling the streets of the United States and, uh, and or they accept uh, with no. what's happening. Absolutely, and, uh, Jamal. You're absolutely right. 
the military historically and the military leadership historically, despite all of their problems and whatever issues, you know, that they've had that we've talked about, you know, for years here, the one thing that most military leaders by far agree upon, you don't turn the, your military force on its citizens. And I think you're right. General Mattis's uh, op-ed was very powerful. Um Admiral Mullins made a similar uh, statement the day before, which was very, very powerful. Mark Esper had a little bit of uh, cojones yesterday, but then later on the day when he heard that President Trump was displeased by his comment, in fact, was able... Dis- displeased means that he was going to fire him. Yeah. I mean, he, he, know, he, he, he wa- Trump reacts to Right, he walked it back. But I think the larger the larger image here and picture that we hope our viewers and listeners are beginning to, I'm sure, see and understand is that you have a president of the United States who who feels very weak right now, because for a president to use this rhetoric and to call out the military through his attorney general and that crazy photo op at the church, which we should talk about in a minute, reflects his own wish to be a, a, a dictator and a thug, but also reflects his deep insecurity, his deep weakness. And of course, he's falling in the polls against Joe Biden. So this, you know, Jamal, we're worried that this will only get worse as Joe Biden, Inc., you know, his polling gets better. And the thuggish narratives that are coming out from the White House uh, will will probably increase. So I think things are probably going to get worse. They are uh, going to get worse. And, and I, I have this uh, nightmare vision that Trump won't leave office if he loses. And especially if we have right. a close vote, that then we'll start, we'll start thinking about the uh, National Guard and the military and who's going to support him. Uh, I have this uh, nightmarish vision, and which... Uh, and I don't think it's ever happened in the United States. But, it hasn't. Uh, but the way he acts, the way he reacts, in, instead of de-escalating, he just takes these crazy positions. And then you've mentioned the, uh, you know, the photo up that he went brandishing a Bible in front of the church where he was not invited, where the uh, the basically the whole parish didn't know about that he was going there. And of course, they didn't show you in that photo up how the uh, police and the Secret Service were uh, brutalizing the demonstrators to basically make way for him to go there. Later on, we saw these images that uh, he was not really welcome no. to be there. No. And then you look at that image. I mean, this is an image, image that supports to uh, unite the country. Uh, it's supposed to display unity, diversity. Who did we see? Five, what was it, five or six white, white men people. and one white woman. Right. And this is America's Trump, or this is what his vision. I mean, if, and, and the white woman happens to be his spokeswoman, his, his uh, press charge secretary. of communication, yeah. press secretary, whatever. I mean, if he had, I don't know, he used to have hopes as his communication uh, uh, director. She's, I don't think she's there. But... The optics, I mean, this is the White House, for God's sake. 
the optics of this, you're trying to send a message to, 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 the, to the world, not only to the United States, because but, people are demonstrating about right. racial profiling, about uh, beating up and killing. I, you know, this is, I just want to say something, which I kind of made me change my mind, hearing it and watching it. George Floyd wasn't killed. George Floyd was tortured to death. That's a whole different story. You know, killing is one thing. If a police officer picks up a gun and shoots something, then they can claim they did it in a, in a moment of anger or, or a, a moment of distress or a moment of confusion. He was tortured for almost nine minutes. I think, and died yeah. from his torture. This is how he died. You know, I think that's a very, very uh, important thing that you're saying, Jamal. I'd, I want to just refer to uh, the autopsy yesterday, which supports what you're saying, but in a more disturbing way. One of the doctors that was speaking the other day that did did the autopsy on George Floyd said that he suspects that George Floyd uh, died three minutes and 50 seconds into the act of uh, Officer Chavren's knee being on his neck. And we know that he had his knee on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes, as you said. And so another jo officer, I think, had the knee on his back, too. So basically, he died after three and a half, four minutes, and yet they continued to torture which I think is an appropriate word, uh, this, this man uh, in a way that is incomprehensible. He had already died after about three and a half, four minutes, yet for another four and a half minutes, they continued to uh, basically crush his vertebrae, his cervical neck area, crush his windpipe, and uh, inflict this brutality on a man who had already passed away. So I, I think torture is a very appropriate word to use in this case. And that's why I keep coming back to this thing, Jamal. This is state-sponsored violence against black people. Black You're men listening and women. to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And we also wel welcome our viewers on YouTube and on Facebook. Yes, uh, just you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, this is such an inhumane, I mean, uh, thing to watch. Uh, it's uh, something that, again, like thinking about uh, what ben, ben Crump, the attorney, when he was uh, reciting all these names, for the world uh, to hear and, and, and listen that this is, uh, you know, the, the whole thing about I can't breathe, uh, you know, an entire nation uh, can't breathe uh, because of these actions. It's systematic. Uh, racism is basically systematic. And it's, uh, the entire globe has been watching it. Uh, just And so now we're coming, uh, I mean, this is happening. Uh, I want to think about the whole stress that a lot of people have been going through in this country, their frustration. For the past couple of months or so, we've been talking about the COVID-19, the right. Uh, right. global pandemic, but also the global pandemic itself 
uh, has been selective in a way it affected people. And the African-American community is devastated more than others well, that's by this pandemic. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. And so when we talk about systemic and systematic racism uh, targeting black men and women uh, in such a way that they are killed and murdered and arrested at a much greater rate than, than white people, it translates in the same way to health disparities and the fact that maybe only 7 or 8% of the people who get infected with COVID-19 are African-American, 50, 60, 70% of the people who die from COVID-19 are black men and women, primarily black men. So the racism doesn't just start and stop at the uh, at the door of uh, the justice system, which is grotesquely racist. It's, it's the same thing in our health system, because the the murder and the death of African American men and women is also coming at the hands of our our health system, which has tremendous health disparities affecting the African American community. This is really a devastating. I will say it, it's a devastating time for the African American community, but that's from a white perspective, Jamal. Because from the African American perspective, they, as I said before, they've had the state. And the uh, police state knee on their necks for hundreds of years, and they've been they've they've had the the short end of the stick in the healthcare system for you know decades and decades. So this is not news. What's news is that finally the rest of the society is finally waking up to see it. And just just to kind of talk about COVID nineteen and the pandemic, Jamal, it's. You know, it's not as if the virus takes a break because we're we're trying to mourn the death of uh, George Floyd. As of today, six and a half million total cases in the world, three almost three hundred and ninety thousand global deaths in the United States, one point eight million people infected. But here's the stark figure, Jamal. We've we're close we're closing in on a hundred and ten thousand deaths in the United States. 40, over 40 million people in the United States have lost their jobs. This is, again, we, we said this earlier in the show, one of these historical moments for this country that is just getting worse. And we have to put that in the context of absolutely no leadership from the pandemic perspective coming from Washington, no leadership coming from the social justice point of view from Washington, D.C. Thankfully, we heard from even though it's a little late, we heard from Barack Obama, we heard from George Bush, we heard from Jimmy Carter, we heard from Bill Clinton, all kind of trying to like pick up the pieces of some kind of leadership right now when there's just, people call it a vacuum, Jamal. I don't think it's a vacuum of leadership. Well, if it was a vacuum only, that's one thing, but we have someone who is destructive. Exactly. I mean, a vacuum, you have an absence of leadership, but this leadership takes actions exactly. that are harmful to this country, whether the pandemic or on, on race relations or on the economy and, and because unemployment. Uh, and, and, and now, here is one thing. I've been watching, of course, Fox News. I try to always f- watch all these diverse networks, including Fox, and it's very painful to watch them. But their focus has been on the riots and the destruction. So their focus 
and 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 uh, and uh, you know of course i'm saddened to see some uh, people and businesses losing property and and also there was a police captain who was who was killed and right. and, and and others but that's their focus. The focus is, is it's not like understanding why are these people writing. There are some maybe few bad apples who just use this opportunity to steal. But others, I mean, I've, saw, I've seen people who actually were going in to grab bottles of water and toilet paper, you know, right. because people don't think that, that people who are not only angry about the death of George Floyd, and before that, Ahmad Arbery. But you're talking about people who are in the front lines, who are the blue-collar uh, workers right, who the lost essential their workers, jobs. Right. The essential workers, they have no money to eat. They don't have money to get out. So for them, this whole idea about, oh, let's save our property or, or let's watch our... Uh, uh, investment account, uh, Charles Schwab and Fidelity, whatever, it's going up and down. They have zero money there to watch. It doesn't make any difference to them whether the stock market, and by the way, the stock market is for the rich people. It has not been that bad because it has recovered pretty much most of its losses. But these guys are, have been out of a job for three months. That's right, Jamal. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that, that issue because part part of what you're hearing from the conservative media, Fox et al, is that they're, I mean, they say really terrible things like uh, they're focusing on the violence, this is uh, violence this and violence that. The most nuanced thing you hear them say is, well, the violence takes away from the message, right, of George I, I was. I thought about this initially myself last show. I said... It and should I gave, be peaceful. And, and I gave I you support, a hard time. I know I gave uh, you a hard you did, time. And I still support the peaceful, but I also understand people's frustration. Minus the few who are taking, who are opportunists, really. Okay. But minus, but the others, other people. And then I've also watched video just when demonstrations start very peacefully. And then the police comes into the picture and they start pushing people away, and right. they start lobbing uh, tear gas at them, and it turns violent. Right, and then you also have this report that came out from very. Oh, and let me, sorry, and then the other thing, the other video I watch are white instigators. Well, I was just going to say that. Also, so, uh, also causing, in fact, there is a, a video that went viral of an African-American woman going after two white women who were tagging a Starbucks and said, don't do it in our neighborhood because, and they're basically also tagging it with B-L-M, Black Lives Matter. So they'll think that it's the Black Lives Matter people. And then she was chewing them away saying, just don't do it in our neighborhood. But that's a really good point, Jamal, because the FBI has come out and said that, uh, um, a lot of white supremacy groups are masquerading as quote Antifa or yep. masquerading as uh, you know being supportive of the protest, but actually what they're doing is provoking people towards violence. And in fact, they arrested somebody in yep. Minnesota who was a white guy, white supremacist, who was bringing bombs to hand yep. out to people to throw. So you have part of the white supremacy movement 
who are trying to use this opportunity to kind of confront institutional racism and have justice reform, social justice reform, using it as an opportunity to foment more divisions. Um, I just want to say one more thing really quick about this. I'm glad that you rethought your comment because one of the things I'm hearing a lot from people is, you know, it takes away from the message when there's violence. You know, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with the violence. I'm not. But what I am saying is that the violence is part of the message. It doesn't take away from the message. It's actually part of the message because violence is being perpetrated against black Americans. Full stop. Yet, when violence is being directed towards, you know, uh, you know, symbols of capitalism or symbols of white supremacy, then, oh no, we can't have that. So we really need to be very careful about the language. Of course, we don't condone that kind of violence, but yeah. to say that that's not part of the message, you know, it kind of is part of the message, to be honest. We have a few minutes left, Jess. I want to talk yeah. uh, quickly about... Um, some of the legal kind of predictions, I've been watching a lot of uh, uh, good attorneys and basically what they've been saying, and this is my also another of my worries and fears, that they're saying, okay, well, you know, finally these officers got arrested and they've been charged, but that's one thing. Conviction is a whole different right. thing because we've seen time and time again cases, and I didn't know that, to tell you the truth myself, until I started digging further into that, and uh, that there are so many loopholes right. that uh, the police department departments have across the United States that makes it very difficult to convict police officers it's very for, for murder. And so my fear is that now people feel a, a little bit vindicated and the families are saying, because that's basically the basis of their anger. Had not the uh, district attorney uh, in, in Minnesota uh, right. um, took their time to basically arrest them. I mean, the initial report, oh, they just fired them. And now, and then uh, this will drag on for a few months or maybe more. Oh, longer. Uh, uh, years. Longer. And then and these guys either get acquitted or they get a slap on the wrist and the, 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 the uh, second degree uh, murder charge becomes manslaughter or something like this. Because you know, and I've heard that from several attorneys, that a lot of people are going to have interest in this case and they're going to have top-notch attorneys paid right. by... Uh, white supremacist groups and others and whoever, and who are going to find all these loopholes in these different laws to basically reduce their sentence. I think, you know, Jamal, I think that's something to be very concerned about. If you look at the conviction rate for officers who commit these violent acts, who charged with murder or manslaughter, the conviction rate is less than 5%. It, it's really, yes. it's very, very low. Well, I mean, this is what happened with Rodney King. Exactly. Rodney King, we've witnessed not one officer, not two, not three. I don't know how many there were there, like almost a dozen of them, beating the living daylight out of him. And then they basically were set uh, they were exonerated, exonerated. Well, and that's what kind of drove the people into the streets. And I have to remind people that Rodney 
King's demonstrations or so-called riots at the time lasted for almost two months. Right, right. And unfortunately, Six weeks. right. And after, but look at what happened after Rodney King was murdered. You know, or Rodney King was beaten. He wasn't beaten, murdered, yeah. but, you know, when he was beaten. Let's look at what happened. Was there any uh, police reform? No, very little. You know, um, a lot of these problems were endemic also under the Obama administration. I don't want to let the Obama administration off the hook. But what I will give the Obama administration some credit for is that they did have a policy or did have a program for police reform in terms of using these tactics against civilians. And one of the first things that uh, Trump did when he was elected is undo all of those uh, uh, safeguards that the Obama administration had uh, put in. So one of the things Obama said the other day, I think, yeah, yesterday, in fact, was that they have a proposal for police reform. It's not going to come from the federal government. It has to be done local. And um, hopefully, you know, worst case scenario, Jamal, nothing happens. These police officers, you know, are released. You know, they're not convicted. And we're back to square one. Maybe this will lead to some sort of reform uh, at the local level for police, uh, you know, using these violent tactics of, you know, I'm just going to call them what they are, Jamal. These are Israeli tactics. <laughs> Israeli. <laughs> well, that's, that, I mean, you know, you're talking, I'm listening to you, you're talking about police reform. And instead of having police reform, we're basically outsourcing brutality. We are sending our police officers. We're not sending them to Switzerland. We're sending them to a country that engages in torture, human rights abuses, murder, apartheid, beating, all on camera. It's all captured. We're not making this up. I mean, they're not, like I said, sent to Sweden or Switzerland or some, you know, they're sending, they've been sent to the most brutal country now on earth to de dealing with uh, basically an indigenous uh, population. Right. And then we're bringing them back here to the United States. And who do they practice it on? They practice it not on white people initially, because we know how white people are treated differently. They target African-Americans, uh, Latinos, Latinas, uh, people of color. And, and, and so that's why I can't think about the reform. A, end these uh, basically exchanges. They, they, and, and, and the other maddening thing is I don't see the media talking about that uh, enough. They well, try to kind of, the Amnesty International is calling attention to it. Other uh, human rights organizations calling attention to it. And then the media doesn't mention where well, do these police officers receive their training. Well, on that note, we'll be covering it here on Arab Talk. You've been listening to Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal on KPOO 89.5 FM here in San Francisco. We continue to bring you our Arab Talk shows from our shelter-in-place location in Northern California. We're going to continue to do this. We encourage you to go to our websites where you can find all of our shows, uh, ArabTalkRadio.com, but go to Jamal's Facebook page. A lot of great information. You can see the show live. That's Jamal Dejani too. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Mm -hmm.